to Sick Enough, the podcast about patients who are sick enough to be in the hospital and the doctors who are sick enough to work there. I'm Dave. And I'm Tyler. And we're hospitalists. We're internal medicine doctors who specialize in treating patients who need to be hospitalized. We work full-time in the hospital, acting as your doctor while you're there, working to get you better and back home. A quick disclaimer, we created this podcast to educate and entertain our listeners. The information we share is not medical advice, and you should always consult your own doctor. Also, please note that we are doctors for adults and are not trained or qualified to comment on pediatric care. Warning, in this episode, we graphically discuss some gastrointestinal tract issues. If you're eating or are easily grossed out, you may want to hold off on listening. While we refrain from using profanity, some listeners may still object to graphic discussions of the GI tract. Tyler, I don't know about you, but uh, I feel like we talk about this stuff all the time. We could be eating lunch in the office discussing some pretty graphic stuff. No, this is true. I, I one time had a uh, pharmacy drug rep dinner where they were talking about a treatment for C. diff. And I was eating brown gravy as we were talking about this treatment for diarrhea. And it didn't phase me one bit. Yeah. So I think doctors, at some point, we just get kind of, I don't want to say immune to it, but maybe just numb to it. And, yeah, a lot of nurses uh, too. Yeah, and we can kind of forget the general population doesn't really want to hear about gross stuff while they're eating. So Yeah, anyway. so we, we got some episodes coming up in our GI series, so get ready for gross. If you, yeah. if you don't like gross, you might want to skip the next four episodes or five episodes. Well, and happy 25th episode, by the way. Yes, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> we made it this far. Yeah. So as Tyler mentioned, a lot of our upcoming topics have to do with the GI tract, and so I thought it might be appropriate for us to talk about the GI tract's anatomy and how it functions kind of under normal circumstances. Technically, the GI tract starts with your mouth. You don't think of that as the GI tract, but your pharynx and your throat, your mouth are, when you swallow, your mouth passes food to your pharynx, to the back of your throat. The food goes into the esophagus. The esophagus, of course, is the long muscular tube that connects your food, your throat to your stomach. I mean, that is the beginning of the GI tract there, mm -hmm. your, your tongue, your teeth, your mouth. After the esophagus, food goes into your stomach, and your stomach is a big muscular pouch that has valves or sphincters at the top and bottom to hold food inside. As food gets into your stomach, your stomach starts secreting acid and other chemicals to start breaking solids down into liquids. It also starts churning to mash any solids into liquid. Once everything in your stomach has liquefied, the pyloric sphincter, which is the valve kind of at the end of the stomach, will open and let food into the small intestine. Contrary to popular myth, the small intestine is not miles long. It's about 22 feet long, though. It's actually kind of a lot if you had it like laid out end to end. It probably seems even longer to surgeons who occasionally have to run the bowel, meaning that they have to examine each and every section for damage. This is sort of like untangling a very delicate garden hose. <laughs> I couldn't imagine doing that for a living. <laughs> I know. That's, half, you, off, half off to them. For yeah, doing do you that. remember being in cases and suddenly someone would smell something and they'd yeah. be like, okay, we got to check the bowel. And then they would have to, it would take... 30 minutes or longer I, to go to run the entire length of the bowel. I remember that. Those are some of my least favorite surgeries yeah. to scrub in on when I was a medical student. The small intestine is divided into three parts, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. It's not horribly conversational here. Uh, it's more for clinical medicine if we're doing like an endoscopy. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I think this becomes most relevant when we talk about, at least for our listeners, when we start talking about doing endoscopies and colonoscopies, because... If we have to look inside one of these structures, we can easily get down to the duodenum and we can see the entire length of the colon, but there's kind of a section in the middle that it's hard to get to. Yeah. You continue digesting food past the stomach into the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum. 
the gallbladder connects, the duodenum is where the gallbladder connects to dump bile into the food to help emulsify and digest the liquid food. The same spigot there is where the pancreas helps to dump digestive enzymes into the food. Basically, the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine, is kind of like the the entry point for enzymes from the, the gallbladder and the pancreas. Then we digest the food into smaller bits that it absorbs, and then they move along from the duodenum to the jejunum and on down the track. Yeah. So the way I sort of conceptualize this is like when you think about the words that you read in the book, in a book, some are really simple and are only one letter long, like I or A. But some other words can be extremely long, like the word extremely itself is nine letters long. The foods that we eat are kind of like this. Some are going to be like sugar, which are really simple and don't really require that much digestion. Your stomach can, or your intestines can pretty much absorb that just like it is. Other things like fats and proteins are more complex and have to be broken up into more manageable sizes in order for our body to absorb them. For example, fatty molecules are broken down by an enzyme called lipase, which is if you took Greek in high school, that's surprisingly pragmatic because lipe means fat mm-hmm. and ase means digest mm-hmm. or break apart. So lipase means fat break apart. Pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Complex carbohydrates like starches, like bread, pasta, potatoes, they're broken down by enzymes called amylase. I don't remember what AMA stands for, but I'm going to guess it has something to do with sugars or carbohydrates. Yeah. When you think about it, enzymes are kind of like actual nanobots. Like we've all seen movies and stuff where some villain is creating nanobots for something or someone wants to heal or fix something with nanobots. But when you think about it, enzymes are actual nanobots. Like they are small little machines that you can only see with like an electron microscope. They've got their mission. Yeah. And they they have their one program mission. And that is when I find this sort of bond, I'm going to cut it and break it. And, you know, just like in movies where we see nanobots get out of control and start breaking down things they're not supposed to. We actually see enzymes do that as well. And that's a topic we can talk about it in one of our future episodes on pancreatitis. It but. sounds so high tech, yet it's actually like caveman quality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is what came from, from evolution. Yeah. As food moves through the small intestine, the walls of the intestine absorb all these nutrient pieces and enzymes. And the enzymes keep cleaving the remaining nutrients to help digest further. And your, your intestine has a huge surface area. So we mentioned earlier that it's about 22 feet long. But if we were to slice it open and spread it out so that the entire surface area is completely exposed, it would be the size of a tennis court, which is you know enormous. Yeah. But all that area gives you a lot of surface to absorb nutrients. You also have bacteria present in your GI tract that help digest some of this food as well. And our bodies can't digest everything that we encounter. And bacteria help digest some of those extra things, and they give us useful things like vitamins and other other nutrients that we might not otherwise create or get on our own. By the time everything reaches the ileum, which you may recall is the final part of the small intestine, all that's left is just a bunch of watery yellow-brown liquid that's basically undigestible waste and excess bacteria, which is more commonly referred to as poop yeah. or fecal material, if we want to be a little more scientific. Towards the end of the small intestine, your body starts to try and reclaim some of the stuff you added to help digest the food, like bile and water. Food moves from the small intestine into the last part of the GI tract, the large intestine, a.k.a. the colon. The colon is on average about five feet long. It's larger in caliber than the small intestine, which is why it's called the large intestine. It's a muscular tube, just like pretty much the rest of the GI tract is, but it uses peristalsis to move its contents along. And peristalsis is 
sort of a series of wave-like muscular contractions that help to kind of push and encourage stuff inside to move along. But in your entire GI tract uses peristalsis. It's how your esophagus moves food to your stomach, and it's how your stomach grinds up a lot of that food. So it's not just the colon that uses that process. The colon starts in your right lower abdomen, goes up the right side, across your upper abdomen, down the left side, and then down the middle towards your anus. The colon's job is largely to reclaim water from all the stuff you've been digesting and to condense any waste into a solid so that you can excrete it from the body. You know, we think of these all as different organs in the body, but in a way, the GI tract is really just one very, very long muscular tube. Huh. That's some pretty good food for thought, Dave. My gut instinct tells me that you'd like to move on. You should trust your gut. I don't think I could stomach another bad pun. They are gut-wrenching, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I must have been getting kind of punchy when I was working oh, on this. <laughs> there are a few additional parts of the GI tract that we only briefly touched on earlier. The liver, the gallbladder, the bile ducts, and the pancreas. The pancreas is where I'd kind of start off, but it's an organ that could be considered part of the digestive system, but is also really claimed by the endocrine system. One of the pancreas's functions is to make and store the enzymes that our body needs to digest food. The other major role of the, of the pancreas is to make and secrete insulin into the bloodstream in response to rising blood sugar levels. Insulin is technically a hormone, which is why the endocrine system really claims this organ, because the endocrine system is all about you know the organs of the body that make hormones. Like the pancreas, there are probably a number of other systems that could claim the liver, but it's pretty definitely part of the digestive system. The liver performs a lot of functions, which we'll talk about later. Uh, it's got about 500 functions, and many of them are clinically significant, which we'll see in a coming episode. And very few of these actually have to do with digestion. Yet it's firmly considered part of the GI tract because it makes bile from bilirubin, and bilirubin is a byproduct of red blood cell breakdown. This bile that the liver makes is deposited into the gallbladder until you eat a meal. When your stomach sends that liquid food down into the duodenum for further digestion, the gallbladder is stimulated to contract and it empties all of its bile into the cystic bile duct, which then carries the bile down into the duodenum. The liver is a recycler. It takes a lot of toxic waste, for example, bilirubin and some other undigested products, and it kind of converts it into usable material like bile and bile salts. These chemicals get reused over and over again as the body resorbs about 95% in the terminal ileum to be reused. But the liver does a number of other jobs. For example, it filters toxins from the bloodstream and metabolizes them, which metabolizes means breaks down into other things. It builds tons of proteins. It can make albumin, which is a, an important protein for your blood. It makes clotting factors. It can also make lipoproteins, which are the proteins that carry fat and cholesterol in your bloodstream. It stores excess glucose as glycogen, which the body can use to break down into glucose, also known as regular sugar, as a kind of a lay term. It can help use that for energy rather than fat metabolism, just because it breaks apart a little easier. In adults, the liver will help remove older damaged blood cells from circulation. However, in infants, the liver will actually make some blood cells. And there are some adults who retain that capacity because of kind of other health problems. So it, the liver can, in a pinch, make some red blood cells too. And there's a couple other things that liver does, and in a future episode, we're going to talk about cirrhosis and liver failure and what happens when you don't have these functions anymore, so that'll be a good one. Yep. 
Well, that's your GI tract in a nutshell, and that's how the food that we eat gets processed and absorbed by the body and how waste makes its way out. So let's do some questions and answers. I'll ask you answer. Where do farts come from? Um, chemical reactions in your GI tract sometimes produce gas as a result. You also have bacteria that live in your GI tract and help with digestion. They sometimes produce gas as a byproduct. So why do farts smell? And for that matter, why does poop smell? Well, poop often contains a lot of bacteria, and these bacteria often produce gases that we perceive to be smelly. This is kind of advantageous to us, though, because these bacteria, though they're helpful inside our gut, they could be kind of harmful if they got into an open wound. They could cause, you know, a serious infection if they got into wounds or in, into other places that we would consider more sterile. In fact, a lot of GI issues that we treat occur because good bacteria got someplace that it wasn't supposed to be. So I imagine that humans who felt that poop smelled bad probably did their best to avoid it and avoided nasty infections as a result. And the people who thought that poop smelled good probably didn't fare so well when they wound up getting some bad infections. So it's an evolutionary survival technique. I think that's probably it. I think it also there's also some a fair amount of gases like methane, and I think there's some sulfurous compounds that, that we probably perceive to be pretty smelly in there too. So that's probably the more scientific answer, but I think the more hypothetical or answer would be that that if poop smelled good to you, you might be tempted to go play around in it and then you'd get a bad infection and die. So I noticed we went through the entire GI tract and we didn't mention the appendix. What's that for? So the appendix, there's a lot of debate as to what it actually is for. And for the longest time, people thought that it was maybe a vestigial organ, maybe something that had a role in our ancestors, you know, thousands of years ago, but that maybe had faded out over time. I think the current thinking now is that the appendix is sort of like a library where your body can store sort of copies of all those good bacteria that you need to help with digestion. And in sort of catastrophic sort of events where, you know, let's say you got a really bad diarrheal illness and your entire GI tract had to sort of flush itself out, you would be able to repopulate the GI tract from that appendix full of good bacteria. I think that's sort of the thinking about what its role is. That's about um, my understanding, too. It's somewhere between we don't really know or it's got some immune balancing of bacteria function to it. Yeah. But for our listeners, the appendix, it's basically a pouch that sits off the terminal ileum in your right lower abdomen. And if it becomes inflamed, obviously it can make you very sick. And if it ruptures, it can be pretty lethal. What are hiccups and why do they happen? Basically, what I usually tell people off the... Off the top of my head is that you have a nerve that goes to the stomach and kind of helps tell the stomach what to do. And that nerve sometimes misfires. And when it misfires, it can cause you to have sort of a spasm or uh, basically can cause the muscles in, in your esophagus to sort of clench up all of a sudden. And I think that's basically what, what the hiccup is. That's about it. Is yeah. that about it's how you would explain it? It's nerve and it just yeah. kind of clenches the, the diaphragm a little bit and makes everything tighten up. Yeah. So. so before med school, I heard that if you swallow gum, it stays in your GI tract for like 20 years. Um, I don't think that's true. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I think that's 100% true. I think we find it on colonoscopy all the time. I'm totally, I, I was gonna say, I'm I'm totally never, kidding. I'm I mean, totally I'm no kidding. gastroenterologist, but I did my GI rotations as a med student and as a resident, and I never once saw a piece of gum stuck in anybody's no. anywhere. Generally, anything that you take in is going to find its way out somehow. Yeah. There's It's... I'm not really thinking of anything that the body would retain in any in any meaningful way. I mean, unless you're swallowing 
a softball's worth of chewed gum a day, I don't think that's something you need to worry about. Yeah, and but even then, even if it were to like somehow get stuck, like there would be other signs of that. You know, you would have some digestive issues because food wouldn't be able to get through. And you know, maybe we could talk about bowel obstructions at some point in this series because yeah, because that is something we kind of we encounter with I would say some frequency. So, all right. Well, I think that's about it. All right. For at least for my end. Well, thank everyone for listening. Uh, this has been Sick Enough. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I urge you to hit like or subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. I'd like to thank Michael Coburn and Pixabay.com. I'd like to thank Swede Custom Studios as well as Two Birds Artwork for helping us with the thumbnail on the website. And I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Alex. And of course, thanks for our listeners. I'll see everybody next time.